This is the Accidental Safety Pro brought to you by HSI. This episode was recorded March 17th, 2021. My name is Jill James, HSI's Chief Safety Officer. And today I'm joined by Ryan. Ryan is a 14 year veteran of functional safety engineering and process safety and he's been applying those principles to safety for the past six years. Ryan is also an entrepreneur and founder of his own company. Ryan is joining us today from his home in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me, Jill. Well, I was I was mentioning at the start of the show that our producer, Will, who's always um, listening quietly in the background, is probably gonna be laughing this entire time because we have a Minnesotan accent and a Canadian accent all in the same um, recording. And who knows what will happen, how many abouts and boats and other, yeah. Got to listen for the A's. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep that to a minimum, but we'll see where I end up. <laughs> who knows what happens when you put the two of us together? This is, this will be entertaining. It's going to get really thick here pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, it is the anniversary of the movie Fargo. And so maybe, you know, just like in honor of Fargo and all the accents that came out of that, um, <laughs> that will be it today. But Ryan, we, yeah, we didn't, we didn't come here for that. We came here to hear um, a, a story and your story about how it is that you, how it is that health and safety found you in your life and wondering if, if you might share that. Absolutely. So I have a, a rich history uh, with, workplace safety as a uh, as a child my my father was injured in a workplace safety accident where um, he worked in a meatpacking plant a meatpacking mm. facility and uh, he was using a bunch of machinery uh, I'm not exactly sure of the, of the exact terms for the, the equipment he was using but it had broken the hydraulics had broken on it and it was used to lift uh, pigs pig carcasses into uh, loading bins and loading trucks mm-hmm. and the the equipment broke, and so he was just hand bombing them into uh, a loader bay because it they had to get shipped. It was on a timeline, and um, by doing so, like the first first ten, the first fifty were fine. It's it was doing that for you know a repeated amount of time without taking appropriate breaks, uh, trying to hit deadlines. That uh, he eventually herniated his uh, lower back um, vertebrae and required a uh, a bone fusion in his lower back. Wow. He was 24 at the time. Mm. Um, I was quite young. And uh, so I've lived what that looks like uh, through him, or I've seen the impact that it's had on his life and, and mm-hmm. how, you know, it doesn't have to be a fatality to be serious. It can be mm-hmm. anything. Chronic chronic back injury has been a, a big problem for many companies uh, and many individuals across the, the North America and the world. So Hmm. So did your dad, did your dad continue working at that meatpacking facility? No, no. He, uh, he had to go to surgery. Um, he was off for, you know, six, seven, eight months. I'm not exactly sure. I was, you're little, I was quite young. So, um, yeah, I I don't quite recall all of that specifically, but he had to repurpose his, his job role. Um, and so he, he managed to get a job, uh, switching career paths into courier, uh, where, you know, lightweight, uh, mm-hmm. small car courier. And um, hmm. unfortunately, like, so while that worked short term, you know, after about a decade of doing that work, he ended up um, re-injuring and, and continuously re-injuring that same 
lower back injury itself. And mm. it's had a ripple effect through his entire back system and just in general, his whole spinal cord. Now he's had surgeries on his upper neck because the changes in, in the tension on the spinal cord mm -hmm. um, affected his neck. And then he, he had to shave off or remove a disc uh, within mm -hmm. his, his upper neck itself. And then his, uh, he had to have another spinal fusion um, to remedy another potential herniated disc that was impacting his ability to walk. Yeah. And so now he's 60 and, mm -hmm. you know, just to show like the financial impact of this, he's been on workers' compensation that have been supplementing his income for 25, 35 years. Wow. So wow. just think of that from a societal cost. Right. Uh, right. Of, of, if you want to put a financial number on it. Yeah. Um, and what was that like for you growing up? I mean, we are such a little kid. This is just how your dad came, essentially. Right. I mean, this was just part of it. But but did his experience color the way that you all approach things in your family from like a safety perspective or what was that? Yeah. So dad, dad didn't like to let this impact him. Mm -hmm. You know, it was it was a, certainly a something he hid very well. Sure. sure. And so as a child, I didn't see it initially uh, until I got until I got in my late teens. Yeah. And I could start to see that, oh, dad's, you know, having trouble walking or he's he's not able to do certain tasks. Or I got to help out a little bit more in, in kind of the, the mowing the lawn and yeah. uh, doing any construction projects, renovations in the house and that kind of stuff yeah. in, in heavy lifting. Um, hmm. When I really noticed it was when I had kids and he wanted to play with them so bad. Hmm. And he would of course, because that overrode his enjoyment of, of enjoying his grandchildren was a higher priority than protecting his, his back. And, mm -hmm. uh, but then afterwards he, he looked exhausted mm -hmm. and it, it took a toll on his body. And mm -hmm. so, and, mm -hmm. and, and now looking at like, he can only work, you know, two, three hours a day. Um, and he wants to work. He, he hates being sedentary. That is not something that he's chosen to do. He, he right. wants to, stay active and stay fit and stay moving around. Um, and this is just, you know, that ripple effect that it's had yeah. a degradation of his back just in general. So, right, right. Yeah, exactly. I was thinking about, as you're telling your story about your dad, I'm thinking about my own, my, my father before I was born um, had a traumatic brain injury as a result of um, farm equipment, a farm accident. And so yeah. And so like you, I grew up with a father that had a, an injury from, you know, work. Right. And um, except his happened on a farm and um, wiped out the frontal bone in his um, uh, so the forehead bone. So he didn't have a bone in his forehead. So if you can. Yeah. Right. I mean, how odd is that? Um, so I grew up in a house where, you know, everything appeared functional with my father, except we were really raised to be super careful around dad's head, you know? So, you know, my, my say the safety impact of my father's story, which is, you know, different than yours. I mean, you're seeing this long-term, long-term financial impact and also, um, you know, your dad's want for work and um, a limiting agent. And, and uh, mine was colored by, being careful the the way that we placed things in our house or the way that we moved about and things that carry with me to this day. 
because you're thinking about, oh, this could hit somebody in the head. And, if, you know, have, having your dad get hit in the head when you don't have a frontal bone, it sort of would be, you know, fatal. And so it colors the way you do things. And so interesting how our little lives, right? I mean, even before we're just little tiny kids, how these things color um, our, our lens. Yeah, they paint our perspective, right? Yeah. And so as I was going, getting into the yeah. workforce, uh, you know, after going to school, I took electronic systems engineering is what I'm trained in. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, heading up to Calgary to go work in the, in the oil field. Um, I always had that that what can happen uh, in the back of my mind. So when I'm, yeah. when I'm programming control systems or when I'm building control systems, you know, if a shutdown doesn't occur and, and you know, a vessel overpressures or, mm -hmm. you know, even um, a valve swings when it wasn't supposed to, and it, it can it can impact somebody's hands or somebody's, like, you know, if they're not doing the proper lockout, tagout processes or whatever systematic policy they've put in place, uh, I was very aware yeah. Of, of what can how that impact could could mm. hurt somebody from a personal perspective, and so mm -hmm. I think that's what triggered me to get into functional safety engineering. Mm -hmm. And for those who don't know, functional safety engineering is a, a a process that's been put in place for I think the past four decades now. It started in uh, Europe in Norway, but mm. I, IEC sixty one five eleven is the specification specifically for the processing sector. There's mm -hmm. there's separate uh, policies for nuclear and, and, and other processing facilities, but uh, oil and gas is, is 61511. Mm -hmm. But it's um, how, how do you design a control loop on a processing facility to not fail? Mm -hmm. And if it does fail, you know the probability of failure. So then you are willing to accept that amount of risk mm -hmm. from a tolerable risk perspective. And so... Um, when I, when I started in control systems, I was primarily at the, you know, all of the, the risk reduction and, and risk mitigation tactics have already been, been put in place and I'm just meant to program them in. And so I slowly worked my way upstream to the hazard and operability analysis sector where we would analyze the PNIDs and identify all of the potential failure points and what the risks or consequences would look like with no safeguards and then mm -hmm. move, move up from there. Right. So not, not dissimilar to a hazard analysis on a on a new project or construction sure. or something like that. Sure. Um, it's just our safeguards were automated, and we would quantify them. So we would take all those high risk scenarios, and we would say, okay, now let's put a probability of failure around those. So how often, when that valve needs to work, how often will it not work? Mm -hmm. And there's a, a database we use called Orita, and it's a it's a uh, a shared kind of database that Shell and ExxonMobil and BP, all of the, the big oil and gas producers mm -hmm. put, put their failure rate data into it so that we have, you know, quantifiable information around how often does a 10-inch ball valve fail when it's operating in minus 30 degree temperatures uh, with emulsion running through it. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Right? Because mm -hmm. the, the, it, could, it could be a chemical plant, which is a bit different, right? So you need to make sure that everything lines up, but then you can say, well, you know what, every time... Uh, or one one in a hundred times is when that valve ball valve fails, and then you would plot that into a faulty analysis uh, solution um, to properly analyze what your probability of failure on demand is, and mm -hmm. and is it falling within the realm of appropriate risk reduction? And if it's not, then we can bump it up. We can put two valves in, or we can yeah. put more sensors in to make sure that we're detecting things correctly and that there's no um, issues with. Uh, or discrepancies between, you know, 
spurious trips when sensors aren't working. Mm-hmm. So not hmm. only not only is the safety a concern, but also the availability and reliability of those readings. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Fascinating. And who decides what the what the acceptable level of risk reduction is? Is that something that's in the standard you're talking about? That is part of the standard and it's okay. up to corporates, like the executive team, to say what are what are they what are they willing to lose? What sure. is their insurance gonna cover, for example? Hmm. And there's different tolerable risk requirement standards uh, with respect to the public than there are with respect to people who are traveling and, and arriving on site because the mm-hmm. you know the amount of training that people on site have had is far more than the public. And so if you have a, an oil and gas uh, processing facility, for example, in the middle of a city, mm-hmm. well, and you have an explosion, your impact to, to people, standbys, like, you know, yep. citizens is, is much higher. And so that can impact your, uh, how, how risky you can operate. So with that, like, so usually when, when, with respect to human life, loss of human life or impact to human life, it was a pretty high number, like one in a million years or one in a hundred thousand years is, is the, is you're willing to accept one fatality every hundred thousand years would be a number that they would set as a corporate tolerable risk level. Yeah. And then we would just make sure that we design the, the control loops to make sure that we meet those demands. Interesting. This is, yeah, this is great, Ryan. And so did you like that work? I loved it. It was yeah. so, so fun. Um, in fact, uh-huh. I, at, a, at a quite a young age, I got into it when I was uh, 25. Mm-hmm. Um, at a young age, I was teaching, uh, there's a an authority, that, or the AHJ, the authority having jurisdiction in Alberta, northern okay. Alberta with the oil sands there. Uh, it's called ABSA, so the Alberta Boiler and Safety Association. Mm-hmm. Um, I was teaching them how we could be building safer uh, overpressure protection systems using this specification for for sill loop it's called safety integrity level um, loop uh, design than mm-hmm. than what a mechanical valve could perform at mm-hmm. looking at the numbers a mechanical valve fails one in a hundred times so if you put gosh that seems like a lot it does doesn't it yes but yet that's that's the bar like so wow. If, if that vessel gets overpressured 100 times, one of mm-hmm. them is bound to fail. And that's what was so intriguing to me was like, well, one, like, what does that, what does that model look like? How do we determine that? Right. right. And, and how do we, how do we go from there? Where do we move? And so looking at the Markov modeling for, for that scenario analysis, and then putting an overpressure protection by systems design uh, on top of it, it really allowed us to say, well, I can build a system that will fail one in a thousand times and will have lower environmental impact because we're not going to pop open a valve to, to remove pressure. We're going to, mm-hmm. we're going to shut down before pressure can actually exceed the rated limits. <laughs> so it's just a much different mindset, preventative measures versus mitigation. Right. 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 So how long, how long did you stay in, in that kind of work? Uh, so I did that through the core of my, so I, I did three years of control systems engineering. Yeah. And then I moved into functional safety engineering and, and life safety systems, uh, like, like gas detection and that. And I did that for, uh, 12 years. And did you do, did you do that work in Canada or, um, I know that you said you had told me previously that you've worked in different parts of the world on, 
where, yeah, where did you do some of this work? What took you on those travels? Yeah, so I started doing this work in, in Canada at a research facility uh, where we had to have gas detection systems uh, protecting a research um, uh, facility. So they were, they were doing a lot of oil and gas research. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that life safety system. So if, a, if high uh, nitrous oxide levels were detected, then we would open up the doors to the facility and turn on hurricane fans to, to kind of evacuate all the air. And mm-hmm. we would do an air exchange within 30 seconds kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? Uh, very exciting and exhilarating to witness. Uh, I don't want to be in there when that happens. So <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of where it started. And then I started to get, uh, I, I kind of I made really good friends with uh, one of the safety logic solver uh, solutions. So it's like the computer for the safety system. Mm-hmm. Um, and they started connecting me to their global network of people because they just, I was able to code, but then I also understood how to practically apply the, the, the loop uh, uh, systems. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they connected me there and then I started to code uh, like boiler management systems for uh, a firm out in uh, New Zealand. So I went out to New Plymouth. Uh, it was July when I was out there uh, 20, no, 2011 or something like that. But, mm-hmm. so, but it was New Zealand. I was kind of disappointed. It was their winter, not, our, not, uh, not the time to go. But, uh, mm. but I went out there to commission um, you know, a, a, a boiler system and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and a, a, or a hot oil heater. So the, the standards in New Zealand and Australia for functional safety are, are very, they're, they're law. Whereas in Canada, they are not law. They are uh, optional or mm-hmm. opt-in kind of thing. And how does, yeah, and how does that compare to um, the United States? Uh, so the United States is a little more fragmented. So places yeah. like Texas have, have regimented this for law. Um, you know, Georgia, they have laws in place. I think the, the places where there's a lot more uh, mature oil and gas sector, mm-hmm. like, like Texas, for example, and Louisiana, um, that's where these laws have been put in place because they have an aging infrastructure, right? So if you go to Texas City uh, and the, the BP had a plant there, it was bought by someone else. I can't remember all the, the custody mm-hmm. transfers, but um, when you head down there, like the, the amount of, of issues they have with aging infrastructure can cause detrimental human life loss and it's uh, or an impact to human life in a, in a significant manner. And so even when they're trying to ramp up and uh, uh, maybe something they shut down for a couple of years, mm-hmm. the, the, they have to meet these new specifications when they go to do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, there's numerous examples where um, OSHA have, have put out uh, the investigation, yeah. what happened. And those are very informational uh, videos. I suggest everyone go and look for some of these accident investigation videos where they, they, they animate it and they, they narrate what actually happened and how everything happened and the sequence of events. And it's all solved by approaching everything with safety first. And it's just amazing. So, hmm. but, but then you have places like Wyoming where, you know, the, they have nothing as far as regulations for uh, safety with respect to building, you know, uh, processing systems, mm-hmm. but then environmental regulations override everything. Because you know, the, with uh, the national parks that they have there, they, they don't want it be all the all the pollution. So now you're meeting different specifications that are more environmentally driven, where you have to, uh, incidentally, become safer to operate uh, because of it. 
So are you so are you accomplishing the same thing, or or they, or is it like you said? It seems sort of helter skelter um, <laughs> across the U.S. Yeah, you know, the the U.S. is it's quite fragmented. Everyone has their own ideas, and and you know, mm-hmm. like I was mentioning to you a little bit earlier, was the the differences between what the what the federal law states and what the state law has, and who mm-hmm. what they follow and who they follow, it can become quite. Uh, convoluted, and so again, I'm I'm, rel- I'm, out- I'm outcome based when I approach anything. So if I'm solving something because it's an environmental outcome, mm-hmm. um, you know, safety doesn't get lost. It's just mm-hmm. I'm just framing it differently because we need to do it for that outcome. Right. But in in the meantime, I think just that extra rigor that you put into the the thought behind building a, a solution or or implementing a new piece of equipment. Um, is enough to to say that that, that the risk reduction has been put in place. Whether you're right. reducing risk with with an environmental impact uh, in mind or with a human life impact in mind, it's the same mm-hmm. same thing. So you had you had started by saying you're an electronic systems engineer and you're also a functional safety engineer. So are those two separate um, educational paths? Did you pick up one and then the other? How did that happen? So um, I mean. Uh, I would say functional safety is more of a specialty. Uh-huh. It's uh, it's not a degree. Um, it's it's taught by the TUV out of Germany, okay. And and a lot of other uh, like um, Exeda have picked up on functional safety engineering as well. You can get trained there, or or mm-hmm. uh, I think TUV out of Italy does their own uh, functional safety engineering as well. So it, it's mm. it, it's more um, it's not specifically uh, like an engineering course. But mm-hmm. what it is is a condensed version of the application of risk engineering with respect to process safety. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, with that in mind, so I, I, I took my my electronic system engineering and then got into control systems because it's those are all electronics, sure. and and then specialized in risk reduction or risk engineering through functional safety engineering, mm-hmm. taking that uh, that course. Hmm. Very interesting um, path, Ryan. Yeah. And, you know, it started off as uh, like the functional safety engineering was a mandatory requirement in order to program a life safety system. Mm-hmm. So just kind of serendipitous how it all just kind of fell fell in line. And then I already had, you know, the impact to, to my life. So it just, it really jived with yeah. preventative measures is, is what I really resonates with me. And so you had mentioned, you know, selling that to, to corporations when it's yeah. optional. Yeah. How do you, yeah, right. How do you, how have you done that? <laughs> so, I mean, the, the manufacturers of these, of these logic solver systems have done a tremendous job at showing how preventative measures with the upfront investment can prevent billions of dollars in OPEX or, mm-hmm. or mitigation costs. Right. Um, I, I was uh, in Alberta selling a pipeline leak detection system. It was a few million bucks or something like that. I don't remember the exact mm-hmm. details um, to a firm. And, uh, and I was trying to explain to them how preventing a, a pipeline, like shutting down the pipeline before too many barrels of oil leak out is mm-hmm. way, way better in every single aspect of their reputation, of their production value, of their assets that they're selling um for their their you know uh impact to human life as well and while that 
doesn't ever get disputed. It's it's always a finger pointing show around. Well, we don't have the capex to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, we're saving opex a bunch of money, but I'm not in charge of opex. And it, you know, it's more holistic than that. And I feel like that needs to be implemented as what is the total cost? What is the sum of all costs from a corporate perspective as opposed to a project versus an operational perspective? And so trying to sell that to people who had the mindset of, I need to do really well on my budget for my project if I want to get my bonus. (laughs) Tie it to money. Yeah, okay. Yes. (laughs) The motivating factor is money. So, um, you know, having maybe some long-term bonuses to say, well, how well does the the thing function after? <laughs> might be a better or more appropriate right. solution. But it's it's hard. It's hard to sell an optional expense to people who don't see it. And um, unfortunately, once you implement a control measure, like we can take COVID nineteen as an example. Um, yeah, please mm-hmm. implement masks. Uh, you know, the public health. Uh, advisors or the public health leaders in our in every single country across the entire globe all agreed that wearing masks was an effective way to reduce risk of catching a COVID-19 or flattening the curve, so to speak, mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. COVID-19 so we don't overwhelm our, our healthcare systems. Mm-hmm. And we did it and it worked. But then everyone was like, well, we haven't overwhelmed the healthcare system, so what, we didn't need to wear these masks, right? Like, there's no control case to show what would have happened. It had you not, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like preventative measures are very difficult to sell because if we effectively prevent the scenario we're trying to prevent, it will go unnoticed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or it won't, be, it won't be properly recognized. Right. I, I, I want to ask about some things you've been writing on about the Swiss cheese model. But before, yeah, but before we get into that, I'm just thinking, you know, in the work that you do, um, which, you know, is just mitigating such high risk, is is the disaster that is Deepwater Horizon, is that something that you studied? Oh, absolutely. That was a, a prime example of where preventative measures were skipped mm-hmm. more than once. And that's the outcome of what happened. Yeah. Deepwater Horizon was... Uh, was one of the the videos they showed where you know they they did the analysis they did the animation mm-hmm. and it, they highlighted all of the various aspects that failed and you know when when you remove like so we put multiple layers of protection in place for a reason so that when one layer fails the others can make it up and put can come up to to save the day yeah, yeah. but when you bypass your EOS or it was your emergency shutdown essentially. Mm-hmm. Down hole. When you bypass that valve, you've you you've messed up. Like yeah. that was your last line of defense, and mm-hmm. you, and you kind of skipped over the other lines of defense that you had. Like all of your safeguards were were skipped over mm-hmm. or bypassed in in to get the job done. And you know the, the outcome was the wrong goal. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. we, we we've thought about. So yeah, that is something that they touch on very deeply, and and not just that, but BP Texas City had an explosion when they. They tried to ramp up their um, their ISON unit again with uh, with gas uh, detection, or sorry, with uh, gas production. Mm-hmm. So that's where they take crude oil and they turn it into gasoline. Okay. Um, they had a tower that uh, had a faulty sensor and it, it didn't shut down and they kept on pumping uh, high-octane gasoline into this tower and it overheated because of the chemical reaction and it ran away and it exploded and, and impacted many people's lives. 
Brian, I think we need more of you in our lives. And then also, also with your background in practice, coupled with the ability to, to um, quantify and sell these, uh, these systems that you're talking about or put them in place. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny coming from Europe and coming into Canada where, you know, we would, you would think that we would at least have uh, some sort of equity with, with their rules and regulations, but we're, we're so far behind. And I remember looking at uh, Norway when I was doing gas compression systems back in 2005 mm-hmm. and uh, seeing how they're able to not have pressure safety valves flaring to the environment, like from an environmental impact uh, with climate change and everything being so so high on the radar for many, uh, many of these organizations, um, being able to shut down before that high pressure scenario occurs and just like the gas is underground. It's not going anywhere and it's safely stored. Why don't we just keep it there? Right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Instead, you have leaking and causing earthquakes and places that never should have been. Mm -hmm. If you flare it though, like you're losing money, Mm -hmm. you're burning money now. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't make, that doesn't even compute to a finance person. I, I don't understand the logic behind it. We have better systems in place today. And if it's just because we've always done it that way, then, you know, that's not a reason. No, it's not. No, it's not. Ryan, let's talk about um, how you apply the Swiss cheese model um, to to your professional practice. And also, if, if you don't mind, in, in in the event we have people listening who aren't familiar with it, could can you do a little 101 on Swiss cheese model? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Swiss cheese model is a model that we use for risk reduction, and it's just kind of a, it's a visual uh, comparison to multiple layers of protection that I was mentioning earlier. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you try to shoot a, a, a rock with a slingshot through Swiss cheese in, in one of the holes, you might get through one of the holes, but another, there'll be a blockage somewhere else that it'll hit, mm-hmm. right, and capture it. So um, that's, that's kind of the visual impact that it's trying to, to highlight. Mm-hmm. If you look at it from a layer of protection analysis or a layer of protection perspective, if you can have five circles, for example, have the center circle and then an outer circle and another outer circle, and then keep on balancing those circles, those mm-hmm. circles, mm-hmm. and have a an event occur in the center circle for it to escape and impact somebody, it has to go through five different layers of protection in order to do that, and they're all varying. Uh, amounts of thickness, but all five of those layers must fail at some point in order for that that impact or that event to impact anything. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the layer of protection analysis that I've applied from from functional safety engineering to occupational health and safety. And what I did was I didn't quantify like specifically. I just took some some rough assumptions around how often humans fail to follow a procedure. Mm-hmm. And that is one in 10 failure. One in 10 times humans will fail to follow a procedure. Wow. Interesting. That, that is, it is interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, you know, but that, that number uh, goes up by an order of magnitude when you put two people responsible for a procedure. So, because they, now they're held accountable and it's that accountability that creates that extra, that extra thickness of layer of, of risk reduction. Which so is add, adding another human being increases. Yeah. So mm, interesting. We, we have uh, so in the in the in the purposes of oil and gas, well, we had uh, we have a valve that would need to be 
may, uh, something would have to happen with the valve, whatever, uh, maintenance or, or cleaned out or something. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it had to be blocked off with a bypass valve open. If you put one person in charge of that procedure, one in 10 times, it will fail. If you put two people go to go out there, and it's called a car seal, so you would you would have them actually have to cut the car seal. You have a custody transfer of a car seal, and you document that car seal, kind of like the the warranty sticker on a VCR or a, or a DVD player or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, or a monitor. If you cut that warranty seal, it's it's no longer valid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's what a car seal is for a, a mechanical valve or or, okay. uh, or instrument. Um, but just by simply doing that process, that fails one in a hundred times. Because each of those people are responsible for it, and right. neither of them want to fail. <laughs> so, wow. just that in and of itself, human psychology is is odd. Uh, it's funny how how that functions and how that helps. If there's if there's something if there's some sort of you know faster way to accomplish something, people tend to try it. Yeah, every time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And that, that exposes yourself to risk. So. What I did was I said, hey, if, if we're trying to protect ourselves from COVID-19, you know, we don't need to be putting biometric sensors in our HVAC systems and, you know, limiting uh, remote access to all of these different facilities. We just need to be putting in some very simple, uh, relatively robust layers of protection with, you know, one in 10 times they're going to fail, but it doesn't matter because we're still protecting ourselves to the, the best of our ability and they don't cost anything. So... The way you, you calculate risk reduction in terms of layers of protection is, is you multiply the layers risk reduction factor together. Okay. Yeah, give an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so if I have uh, four layers of protection and each of them is going to fail one in ten times, mm -hmm. uh, one in ten failures on demand, I take the inverse of that to get my risk reduction factor, so that equals ten. Mm -hmm. the risk reduction factor of 10. If I multiply that together four times, I get 10 times 10, which is 100, times 10, which is 1,000, hmm. times 10, which is 10,000. So one in 10,000 times, all of those factors will fail. Mm -hmm. And that is a number that is relatively uh, livable for most corporations. Right. But considering no safeguards, where you're... you're your chance of a COVID infection would be 100%. <laughs> You're reducing it down to 0. 0.00001% mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. 1 10,000 of, of a percent point. So that's that's the power of layer of protections. And so I just, I'll, I'll show you, uh, I'll kind of list out a couple of the four layers of protections that, I was, that I'm referring to. One is social distancing measures mm -hmm. within your workforce, within your workplace, uh, wearing masks when working nearby other people, monitoring self-assessments and questionnaires, you know, pre-checks to make sure nobody has symptoms of COVID-19 mm -hmm. and just increased workforce training during the pandemic and, and, uh, and, you know, in an effort to break complacency, keeping it relevant. Right. Those four things can all reduce your risk of a COVID infection by up to 10,000 times. Hmm. And, and enforcing those things, right? I mean, even how many times have we heard our health officials say in the last year, just because you have a mask on doesn't mean you can get close to someone. Yeah, you can't go rub your face on someone else. And right. <laughs> right. But that's where that education comes in, right? If exactly. they are informed and, 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 and it's, you know, enforce, uh, when we had our call last week, um, enforce is a word I like to, I, I try to steer clear from because it shouldn't be about 
enforcing should be about buy-in and worker like let let these individuals get them participating in this system um voluntarily like it's for them you know if i give you the keys to a lamborghini and i say have it uh you're not going to go and destroy it right away you're going to take care of it right because mm -hmm. it's for you it's a gift and and we need to be approaching safety with the same same rigor and regard Right. And, and so just, I think you're getting to understanding the outcome versus knowing the regulations. Yes. The, the, the regulations are fine. The regulations are in place for a reason. It's because they needed some way to penalize somebody for not doing something. But when you come from an outcome-based approach and the workers in your workforce understand that this is here so that we don't get you or your family sick, that's the only reason. Mm -hmm. You you being sick and your family being sick does the company no good. Mm -hmm. Like why would we ever want to put you in harm's way? That that has negative impact any way you spin it. So asking you to try to, to do something without a mask on is is detrimental to our operation. Yeah, and detrimental to your family. Yeah, and so mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. So let's not take this virus home. So one thing I noticed with COVID nineteen was health and safety was was prioritized very quickly within an organization. Never in my life had I seen government leaders talking about PPE so much in my life. <laughs> I know, isn't it? It's, it, I mean, we're, we have such an opportunity right now as professionals to, you know, because people are talking our vernacular. And so what can we, what can we do with this opportunity that we have right now? Right? Yes, exactly. And, and use it as a, as a jumping off point to, to further, you know, health and safety from, again, removing that, that negative connotation of enforcement, oh, you, you're doing something wrong and make it more uh, involved mm -hmm. with the workforce to say, hey, look, I, I didn't see that you wrote this thing down. Let's talk about that and understand why. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know that uh, you have you've told me before that you like to talk about empathy and how this comes into play, right? I mean, which is interesting to hear from someone who's an engineer. You're very systematic. You think linearly. You're measuring everything, right? And now, and now we're gonna put something that seems a little mushy, like um, empathy, which you and I both know it's not. But you're putting it into practice. So tell me how that works and how you view that. So, I mean, empathy can be measured um, through engagement. And so that's something that, that that's a metric that I, I, I feel, you know, most companies um, should start thinking about in, in, in measuring or putting into their, their safety report. What does is, what is safety engagement look like? And once you understand, I mean, the number is irrelevant. It could be 30% engagement. It could be 70% engagement. You just need to know. Because once yeah, you know... Mm -hmm. What does what engagement, engagement look like, or how would like? Can you give an example, Ryan, and then how would you measure it? Yeah, so engagement to me starts with just are people completing things on time? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, every morning in in you know highly risky scenarios or or before you perform tasks, you're supposed to do some sort of hazard analysis, or you're working from heights. A fall protection plan should be implemented. You know, if you have material up on a high rise, you should be doing material securement checklists, like all of these different things, toolbox talks being another, you know, mm -hmm. safety meetings being another big, big impact to uh, to what the, to the risk reduction, overall risk reduction of the organization. Mm -hmm. um, measuring 
how often the frequency, uh, you know, the timing, the regular timing on when these when these documents are being submitted or completed, um, it, that is a, a really simple uh, measurement to be, to be putting into place and then trending it over a week, week over mm-hmm. week. What does this look like, right? And then get a bell curve. So it's something that I've always thought about is if your your worker engagement is a median at 30%, you have people on one side doing really, really well, and those are your champions. Mm-hmm. And you have people on the other side who, who maybe don't connect safety to their well-being. And those are that's, that's room for improvement. Mm-hmm. That's where now as a safety leader, as a safety manager, you can you can focus on your you know your safety champions they're doing phenomenal you you do not need to go and have confirmation bias talks with them right like mm-hmm. they get it mm-hmm. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. let's let them continue to operate and let's focus our energy on the individuals who maybe didn't submit a hazard assessment last week mm-hmm. you know um, or or you know retroactive submissions and, and you know falsifying documentation is another big aspect because now you're sure you're compliant to an enforcement perspective, but you're not getting any benefit from mm-hmm. performing. Like the safety is, is null. It's actually a cost center now. It's not, there's no investment anymore. Yeah, I saw that so many times in my work as an investigator with OSHA, particularly during accident investigations when I would ask for, um, you know, particular um, paper trails, if you will. You know, uh, particularly when it came to lockout, tagout, or confined space entry procedures, you know, things that really need to be systematic, and how many times that um, that didn't exist, or if it did, it was like, you know, big, big line drawn through all these checkpoints, like, yeah, we did all that stuff, except, except it didn't, you know, it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. you didn't do it at the right time. Like, there, yeah. there's a reason that these, these forms are engineered. These safety forms are not just plucked out of thin air. They're asking you very relevant questions to very relevant job duties and scopes for safe mm-hmm. work practices. Mm-hmm. Um, answering them before performing your job task sets up your subconscious to recognize where the risk lies mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. you're working. Like these are very like so. This is where I I look at empathy as a solution to safety engagement. And, and empathy is the instrument that we use um, in, in an effort to champion new safety champions who maybe don't know yet mm-hmm. uh, about all the things. And, and if you don't measure engagement, you don't even have a, you don't have a metric to, to work from. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you can go and start championing people and you'll probably see an improvement, but you won't be able to quantify it mm-hmm. and, or justify how you're spending your time to your executive team as a safety manager, right? They're going to be questioning, what are you doing? And while you may be able to show them a decrease in incident rates, uh, it'd be great to show them an, an uptick in engagement. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you start those uh, those conversations to improve that engagement? You know, with people, what are? Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of problems when measuring engagement um, that are quite costly if you try to do it on you know antiquated systems like paperwork, where that data is just locked on. Right, right on paper and, and then stored in file cabinets. It may be transcribed into a database at some point in time, but you don't you don't have the insight that you need to properly measure it. So the first step that I talk about safety, the safety managers is to, you know, take the leap and, and get into a digital system of some mm-hmm. sort. 
Mm -hmm. Which one? I don't care. It doesn't matter. The outcome yeah. being uh, an improved safety culture, get a digital system. Mm -hmm. Start getting timestamp submissions in real time where workers are held accountable to the timing when they're mm -hmm. performing their meetings and when they're performing their, their jobs. Yeah. And so that's, that's what I really push for. I don't think that it's possible to, to nurture a safety culture uh, without going digital. Sure. And so the point, the point being to be able to find those outliers. Yeah. So from, and be able to address them um, in a, in a very pointed way. Yeah. Nowhere you should be exerting your energy. Mm -hmm. You know, you are a knowledge worker as a safety professional. You are a knowledge worker that needs to deliver knowledge. I think, you know, the 80, 20 rule, for, for a firm that's implementing safety on paper, 80% of their time is on administrative duties and 20% of their time is worked on knowledge work and value yeah. creation. Right. Let's right. flip that and remove mm -hmm. that burden of administration from their plate so that they're able to start to think, sit back and stop responding to firefighters or the whack-a-mole solution for, for you know being a safety manager of just arriving <laughs> to, to problems that, that always arise. And let's yeah, get yeah. proactive about this and start, you know what, you might find that you're bored for a little bit. That's great because now you can get creative. Right. It gives right, you right. That, that ability to free your mind from just being busy for being busy's sake. Yeah. So Ryan, you've been doing, you've done your work, uh, you know, in different places on the planet. I'm curious with regard to what we're talking about right now, are you finding different um, countries or maybe even business sectors that are more um, inclined to say, yes, of course we're going to do this. This makes complete sense. <laughs> yes. I wish that I could say that I've seen that. <laughs> okay. Just, just checking. <laughs> yeah. No, I, so, I mean, there's, there's a few rules and regulations coming down the pipe. Uh, from a regulatory perspective where they're, uh, I'm seeing in Canada anyway, where they're mandating uh, a company must implement safety on a digital platform or a digital system because auditors are tired now of getting milk crates of yes. documentation that is, you know, boot yes. prints on it, coffee stains in it, illegible uh -huh. and, uh -huh. you know. I've, I've, had, I've had this kind of stuff rolled to me in little red wagons. Like, look at all of our binders. Oh, How are you, you want me to lift the stop work order? <laughs> right. And and this is what you're going to give me to do that? No. Like, I, I can empathize, right? Yeah. I can understand as a business owner, you want to continue working. Like, this is impacting your ability to, to make money, but you're not doing it safely. So what what what's the priority now? So with, with this new, you know, I don't know if it's, it hasn't been, uh, been formalized into law yet but i know it's it's in the works and uh you know with with the way things happen when one country or one province or state yeah, uh, yeah. adopts something usually some some of it trickles into everyone else's plans or well, law that, that is hopeful that is hopeful news absolutely and, and you know people think of of, of you know a subscription to a software to go digital or, or building a software to go digital whatever you want to do um, is going to be costly but I, I bring up the fact that the, you know that I mentioned earlier preventative measures versus mitigation capex versus opex where do you want to save the money because if you continue doing it the way you are 
you're going to ultimately spend way more money in reduced in, in incidents in WCB premiums in unplanned work stoppages caused by occupational injury like buddy hits his hand um with or buddy drops a, a board on his toe because he's he didn't wear steel toe boots to site he didn't have proper ppe well now that was now he's not working and you know what chances are the people he's working with aren't working either mm-hmm. so now that's an impact to your productivity mm-hmm. uh every year every year over 55 billion dollars gets spent through productivity hits on site due to occupational injury. Yeah. That's not even fatalities. That's just people breaking their arm or, or falling because they didn't have fall protection gear on. Yeah. Um, or a back injury like your dad's or yeah. Or a musculoskeletal, you know, something or other. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So mm. you know what, if we can make any impact on that, we're net win. <laughs> Absolutely. If we do a 1% impact on that $55 billion, that is a net win. So, yeah, and and you know that's the high level. But when you bring that home to to the impact that's going to have on people's families long term over decades, generations, that it's it's life experience now that you're impacting. Yeah. And there's no amount of money that you can spend that can rectify that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This is such an interesting topic, Ryan, and such important work. Such important work. I'm wondering as as we're um, you know winding down with our conversation today, are there other things that you'd like to leave our audience with, or if someone wants to study some of the same things you've studied, what would you recommend if if what people are hearing is eye opening and thinking, gosh, this sounds really interesting to me. Where can I learn more about these things that Ryan's talking about? What would you recommend? Absolutely. So yeah. From, from the, the your first question is um, one thing I'd like to leave the audience thinking about yeah. is is uh, from my experience in control systems and and functional safety engineering things came from the world of pneumatics where there was no sensors they were all just valves and you know they had pneumatic sensors that were with like physical plunger systems inside of them that would all work kind of automatically, mm-hmm. but none of them talked to each other, right? They would only respond to the, the thing that was right in front of them. Mm-hmm. If I could draw a parallel to that being the paperwork system that we have in occupational health and safety today, <laughs> right? Yep. I got it. Mm-hmm. And then how we got to where we are today was by putting in electronic sensors putting in digital systems that would function and talk across the whole flat uh, platform or offshore rig or uh, facility so that everyone knew what was going on. Everything was visible and transparent. That's how we accomplished the, the specifications that I'm talking about of risk reduction today. And that is what going digital means, is you've turned everything into a sensor, a data entry point, where you can start to measure things and actually perform really high level work that can make mm-hmm. a, a way bigger impact than just responding to uh, OSHA investigation or, or, a, or a, you know, a, a stop work order or, mm-hmm. or an injury that happened on site. Mm-hmm. Makes so much sense. Yes. That's the future that I'm looking forward to is to mm-hmm. see these digital systems. You know, everyone has a smartphone nowadays and if they yeah. don't, that might be a signal that, you know, you should get the person one <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or some 
other digital entry point. It doesn't have to be a, a cell phone. It could be a tablet or a, or a, or a laptop or whatever. Right, but right. the cost of the hardware is minuscule to the cost of one incident yeah. where you didn't have the data. Mm-hmm. Um, to learn more about what I'm talking about, I'd suggest there's, like I mentioned, a couple of organizations that kind of run the lead on functional safety engineering. Yeah. And uh, it's TUV out of Germany. Okay. They're the uh, they're the governing body of a lot of functional. They're like the originating um, regulatory authority, kind of like uh, UL in in North America or ISA. Yeah, yes. um, and then there is uh, Exida, E X I D A, who do a fantastic job. There's many textbooks that I've read that I bought from them about implementing functional safety engineering, and it's a life like it, it's it's not just it's a holistic approach to an asset. So if you consider a a facility to be a singular asset Mm -hmm. that has inputs and outputs, then let's maintain that asset and and its life cycle is 50 years, 75 years, somewhere in that realm. Mm -hmm. Let's make sure that not only are we protecting ourselves up front, but also in 25 years from now. That's right. Right. So that that Mm -hmm. we're not, we're not losing sight of keeping people safe. Mm -hmm. And that uh, with, the functional safety engineering, uh, when you're designing these loops and, and building out this fault analysis and and all these different requirements, uh, maintenance is, is a big role, plays a very big role in this. And if I could draw a parallel to that, and that, that's our training for occupational health and safety, right? If you consider your workforce as the, the production side of your company, mm-hmm. the maintenance for your workers is training and education. <laughs> Good analogy. Mm-hmm. So when you when yeah, we're yeah. doing these fault these fault analysis on yeah this valve will fail one in three times but if I maintain it every three months and I go and check it it'll fail one in a hundred times right a yep. person will fail one in ten times but if I continuously keep them up to speed with the latest and greatest training requirements and education that I can form for them they are going to fail one in a hundred times mm-hmm. and that's you know, that's not quantified. I'm just making assumptions, but like, that's the, the style of thought process that I, that I'm trying to apply right. to, to, to occupational health and safety that I'm bringing right. to occupational health and safety. Hmm. Thank you for that. And maybe Ryan, you can give us some links to the TUV and Exceda that we can put in the show notes for people if they want to learn more about that too. Absolutely. Yeah. I can that that over to you. Thank you. Thank you. Ryan, thank you so much for sharing your story today. This has been this has been really um, enlightening and interesting. I appreciate it. Absolutely. This is a this is a blast. I love talking about safety and just in general. It doesn't really yeah. matter what the topic is. And I'm so I'm so happy that there are people like you in this world. So thanks for the work that you do and that you've been doing. Not a problem at all. And I appreciate you you bringing me on to uh, to share the story and and hopefully inspire more. Hmm. Very good. Thank you. Without being too convoluted with our accents. I don't think we were, <laughs> right. I don't think we were too bad there. So That's right. I think, you know, we think maybe we did okay. <laughs> all right. All right. And thank you all for spending your time listening today. And more importantly, thank you for your contribution towards the common good, making sure your workers, including your temporary workers, make it home safe every day. If you'd like to join the conversation about this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can follow our page and join the Accidental Safety Pro community group on Facebook. If you aren't subscribed and want to hear past and future episodes, you can subscribe in iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, or 
any other podcast player that you'd like. We'd love it if you could leave a rating and review us on iTunes. It helps us connect the show with more and more safety professionals like Ryan and I. Special thanks to Will Moss, our podcast producer. And until next time, thanks for listening.